TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, our podcast dedicated to everything Star Trek Enterprise. And right now it's dedicated to our 20th anniversary rewatch. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, I remember last episode, at the end, I said we were going to talk about Terra Nova. And with great enthusiasm, you said, let's go. And then this morning... You texted me, you wanted to start a little bit early, so I can only assume that you are super excited about today's discussion. I actually am. Uh, I think this is <laughs> going to be a really interesting discussion, and, and you know, partly because this has gone down in history as an episode that people kind of, I think, loathe or dislike or any of those things. So, you know, it's always interesting to come back and, and revisit that type of episode and kind of look at it with hopefully fresh eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's see what we think about it. Uh, before I read the little you know synopsis of the episode here, I just want to mention that I hope my audio doesn't sound too bad in this episode because about half an hour ago, a helicopter crashed near my house and now there are many helicopters flying around observing it and it's very noisy here in my studio, but hopefully that rumble is low enough that it will be filtered out of the audio. <laughs> Goodness, I hope so. <laughs> we'll we'll just see. So if you hear if you hear a rumble when I talk, that's what's going on. As a refresher, here's a quick synopsis of the episode. The Enterprise visits a planet called Terra Nova, which was the site of the first human colony outside our solar system. It was settled in 2078, and it's an M-class planet located about 20 light years from Earth, which means it took the ship of 200 settlers nine years to get there with the engines that they had back then. There was a bit of friction with Earth, including plans to send a second ship of colonists, which didn't sit well with those who had built the colony. Then everything was quiet for 70 years. The NX-01 arrives. We find out there's been a natural disaster that drove the survivors underground. But there's a twist. The colonists believe that Earth attacked them all those years ago. Actually, it was an asteroid collision. And that story has been passed down through three generations. So when the Enterprise crew arrives, they are certainly not welcome and they're not trusted. So, Matthew, what are your first thoughts about Terra Nova? Yeah, I remember, you know, seeing this episode when it first came out and thinking like, eh, okay, it's an episode. You know, I, I don't feel like I had really strong reactions to it one way or the other, the way that so many people seem to have had throughout the years, yeah. especially as it, I, I feel like as, you know, Enterprise has moved forward, the trajectory of people enjoying the series has gone up. But I, I feel like this is one of those episodes that just continually gets talked about as, oh, that episode, it's so terrible. It's the worst, you know, and just anecdotally, my wife and I, We've been through the first season of Enterprise together, and I remember telling her after we finished this that, you know, fans hated this episode. They thought it was terrible, and she just looked at me and goes, why? Like, and, and so it was just really interesting from somebody who doesn't have the perspective of 
hundreds of hours of Star Trek to mm-hmm. them, you know, to her, this this episode seemed like, oh, okay, that's interesting. She didn't have any problems with it or anything like that. So every time I rewatch it now, I think of that um, because I don't understand necessarily why people have such strong reactions to this episode. Yeah, I don't understand that either. And at the end of our discussion, we're going to talk about some of the reaction to it at the time that it aired, which kind of ties into that. I I can see people thinking that it's a slow episode. I can see people feeling like maybe after the excitement of Broken Bow and the fun trip pregnancy of Unexpected that it's sort of a, a slow letdown. But I find a number of interesting points of discussion in this episode, and I think it continues the uh, evolution of humans going into space. There's some back and forth with T'Pol and Archer, which I think is interesting that we can talk about. And another thing that I noticed and I wrote down in my own viewing notes is that when they come down to the planet and they're walking towards the ruins and you've got the tumbleweed blows behind them and they spin the bicycle wheel, it really has a TOS feel. I could easily see Kirk, Spock, and Bones going down to a planet and doing the same thing, and even the aesthetic of it feels a bit like TOS to me. And I thought that they did a good job of capturing that prequel feeling, that 22nd to 23rd century. Of course, we don't know 22nd yet, but we do know 23rd. That feeling that we were remembering from the original series, especially when you compare it with what we had just come out of with Voyager in that 24th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. And it's interesting, too, that we've had so many episodes so far that have a lot of location work. Mm-hmm. Broken Bow obviously has location work. And, you know, you had a Strange New World, which had uh, lots of location work. Same here. And I do feel like that that it has a, a TOS feel to it, which mm-hmm. is is really nice and it, and it makes sense. And so, you know, and even just the um, I, I, the the ruins of the of the town and you know that it was part of their ship and everything all of that felt very realistic in the sense that it it felt like so much closer to something that we would create which is exactly what you want and and that again that there was a bicycle there you know that that is something that the kids would have brought with them and waited nine years to be able to ride you know on a planet so all of that was was really interesting and i think in many ways the the biggest part here is that I would jump on the the whole thought process of that this is a slow episode or when you think about it, we've talked about before when the reality of going warp five is that you're not going to run into M class planets every week. There'd be months between. So uh, getting to know the, the crew is, is really interesting then here. And this really gives us an opportunity to then look at colonization and yeah. how that's portrayed and of course, this being one of those ghost stories, you know, of mm-hmm. of what happened to this this colony, I think is really fascinating because in in many ways, this is, I think, what it would be like. There would be colonies that you would lose touch with because of all the type of accidents that can happen. And with the technology that they had, I mean... 
they wouldn't know what they were going to find on a planet like this, you know, and they wouldn't have the ability to protect themselves from a major natural disaster like an asteroid. And so a a lot of this actually, I think, really works because there's a real reality to it. Yeah. And that's something that really stood out to me. And I was thinking about how, because right now, there's so many plans in the works to colonize the moon and then colonize Mars. You know, NASA has the Artemis program going right now, and other countries do as well. And so within this century, maybe within our lifetimes, although I'm a bit skeptical about that, maybe the moon, Mars probably not in our lifetimes, but within this century, humans may be starting to build basic colonies off-world. And then I was thinking ahead a little bit, obviously our own history our own future, the timeline that we're on doesn't match up anymore to Star Trek because, you know, this is like 2078, I think I said, when they settled the planet and they left in 2069 to go do that. We're not on course for that, obviously. Although we probably are on course to start building lunar colonies, or actually having lunar colonies by then. So we're a little bit behind schedule. But I was just thinking about you know, how people would get there, what it would be like to set up the colony, what the uh, facilities would be like. And if they could go to an Earth-like planet, which they did here, where they don't have the restraints of having to worry about the air or the gravity and such, you know, what would we do? How different would it look? And this is yet another case where I think that what we see not only matches up well with our own progress and what an early colony would probably be like. But also when you look back at the photo that they show, where they show the early colonists, that photo, there's something about the aesthetic of that photo that reminded me of the colony that we saw in the cage when they went down and they, and they found the survivors there, which, which again brought that TOS feel back into the story. Yeah, well, I mean, we know what it would look like now because apparently from this episode, it just looks like Southern California. So uh, that's really what the planet looks like. Um, (laughs) Well, that's what most of space looks like, Southern California, Matthew. It's true. It's so true. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I I think what the the, the question I I guess that I come with away more from this episode is would this situation happen because – in the sense of what happens to the colonists once the asteroid lands, they think they've actually been attacked by this this ship that had come and that Earth is responsible. And these people seem to really regress in 90 years. Yeah. Quite a lot. Um, and to me, that seems like the leap of logic that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, And I don't know how you feel about that, but it just, it felt like these people lost way too much of their humanity too quickly. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's one that I thought about when I was watching yet again yesterday to prepare for this. I don't know, like on the surface... I would agree that it seems implausible that 
they would have lost that much of their humanity. They would have adapted that much to another world. They would see themselves as novens and humans as aliens. And also for Jamin, it seems that technology in general is like magical mm-hmm. and frightening to him. And mm-hmm. all of Flox's medical technology is just, you know, Flox has has her in for the scan. He's banging on the thing, like, right. let her out, let her out. And I mean, he was born on this planet. His mother came there. Nadette came there as a child. And then he was born on this planet. So, I mean, for him, he's never firsthand seen any of this kind of technology. But it's mm-hmm. it's hard to think that she would have forgotten so much that there would just be no record of any mm-hmm. of this stuff. Then right. again, it's possible that as a child, she was in such shock that she locked these memories out. That's also quite right. possible. So I don't know. On the surface, it seems like a huge leap. But in reality, I suppose that at least to some extent, what we see is plausible. The bigger question that it brought up for me, but related to this, is just thinking about here on Earth. If there were some kind of disaster that really separated us from our technology, how quickly would our civilization fall? How quickly would people come to view the technology that Mm -hmm. we take for granted today as magical or as a myth? Would they be frightened by it? Uh, how mm-hmm. quickly would we revert to more primitive ways of finding food or communicating? And my suspicion is, uh, based also on a number of discussions, scientific discussions I've listened to over the years or read, it probably would happen more quickly than we think just sitting here talking. I don't know if mm-hmm. this time frame is really uh, plausible. But I don't think it would take hundreds or thousands of years like we might think it would. Mm -hmm. I think we might collapse quickly. Um, See, now, one thing I think, you know, as you were mentioning that, obviously technology even within my lifetime has changed dramatically. I mean, you know, what I used to consider a phone and what I now carry around in my pocket don't look all that similar. Right. And, And so I think... There is that. So the thought process of a of a child growing up and never seeing any technology really because they don't seem to have much at all in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then seeing what Flocks is doing, you know, that definitely makes sense there. And if they were not able to salvage much of their technology, most likely because um, much of it was probably destroyed or damaged because of the radiation, you know, and you're just thinking about survival. All of that stuff, I think, makes sense. I th- uh, I guess maybe this could happen. It does seem maybe a little bit far. And part of that, I think, has to do with the with what they do with the costuming and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the fact that these people are, like, wearing mud on their face. And, yeah. you know, like, uh, uh, people 100 years ago, even on earth weren't wearing mud on their face, you know? So I, I don't know if that would happen. I think maybe that's part of my reaction to this is that they almost seem primitive. Right. And, and in the sense of going all the way back to, you know, like a Mayan civilization or something like that, Yeah. as opposed to just like a hundred years ago, you know, we were living on the prairie. Right. So 
I could I could see us you know regressing more in that sense than going all the way back to something like oh now we wear mud on our face for no good reason like, right that just doesn't have work. have you watched the Apple Plus series called C with Jason Momoa have you watched any of that one? I have not gotten okay. to see it yet but I am aware of it so, so we just started watching that recently and. It's a similar situation. It's a few hundred years have passed. There was a virus. All humans are blind now. And the aesthetic of the show, though, their civilization, really reminds me of this episode of Terra Nova, where uh, they actually do wear mud on their face sometimes. And hmm. their the costume design and sort of just the overall atmosphere of the world at that point feel similar to this and it's a little bit longer time period than this but the idea that civilization would collapse in this manner and that humans would behave in this way seems to be a common thought among creatives at least when they're doing a television series like this yeah that is i mean it's interesting and i i guess maybe that is probably one of the things to which you know as people watch it that they do kind of react to strongly is my guess is that mm -hmm. we we would not want to think that that would happen and therefore i think that might be that might be where some of the pushing away of the episode or or treating it as if it's just stupid or dumb or any of those things is because we don't want to think that this could actually happen yeah i can see that well, let's talk about another point here, the evolving morals. Each episode, we've been talking a bit about how Archer is adapting to being a leader in space, how humans are adapting to encounters in which they have to think about their morals and how the way we do things and approach things on Earth carries over into space and when we deal with other civilizations and other cultures. And there's this really interesting discussion between T'Pol and Archer in this episode, where T'Pol seems to be, again, trying to lead Archer to a specific conclusion. And the exchange is quite long, and you already know what it is. And listeners can watch the episode to get the whole thing. So I'm just going to paraphrase, but Archer talks about how there are 58 humans in the tunnel and they need to get them out. And then T'Pol suggests using stun grenades to incapacitate the colonists and then remove them since they won't leave on their own. And Archer says, of course, we can't do that. It's not a slave ship. We need to get them to decide on their own that they want to leave. And T'Pol asks, are you certain it is the right thing? And then she asks him, what are you going to do when you get them out? You take them back to Earth. You know, are you going to send them to school and teach them to read and write and play in the sun? And Archer says, you're damn straight. They're humans, but then she points out to him that they've lived in the tunnels for three generations, and you can't just pluck them out and throw them into a strange world, and everything's going to be okay. You would be destroying their identity and their culture. So uh, how do you feel about that discussion in terms of how Archer and humans are adapting and also how the Vulcans and T'Pol see these interactions and then how the, the series itself is like leading us towards that future where for someone like Picard, it's like very clear what to do most of the time. Yeah, I think this was really the crux of the issue 
uh, of the episode and and really the learning process for for Archer, which is fascinating to to be able to be a part of as as a viewer and just in, enjoy the progression of the character. And I think the the beautiful thing is that Archer does know what needs to be done. It's not going to be easy though, and and I think. For him, the reason of saying yes, they they do need to be taught to kind of live back in the sun and 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 all those things is don't want humans to feel like they have to cower underground, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, these people have lost a little bit of their humanity by having to do that. There's there's something about us as humans, you know, we're we're meant to live in wide open spaces and and be able to see the sky and 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 obviously our bodies are meant to you know drink in vitamin d and it's it's mm-hmm. good for us and all of those type of things that, that help make us who we are I, I again i just think this was the best part of the the episode um and getting the opportunity to see archer struggle through how to do this and 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 i think in the end the answer is is beautiful one he helps them two he doesn't try to force them into the issue and three he's the one who continually extends the hand of friendship and does all he can to earn their trust and of course you know circumstances allow him to be able to do that even more quickly by, you know, helping to save one of their own from dying and really show them that he is trustworthy and and to break the stereotype that that these people have of humanity and what the rest of humanity is like. And so, and I think that's something that for me kind of stood out with, you know, these people because on top of the morals section, you really also see what happens when there is a misunderstanding of history and or a loss of history because these people have completely lost their history mm-hmm. of humanity and 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 being human and and so when that happens when you you build your history on a lie you you begin to lose pieces of yourself mm-hmm. i just uh, to me all of that is really fascinating and and i think this episode, there's a lot more depth there than people give it credit for. Obviously, it's 44 minutes, so we're not going to be able to get into everything as deep as possible. But I, I think there's actually a lot more there than people give this credit for. Yeah, I absolutely agree because I, I doubted on a lot of points that it can be the basis of of extensive discussions actually about this episode. You know, related to this thing with the poll. And Archer. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was Archer's frustration at times in this episode. And the moment that really stood out to me there was when they were talking about the situation and Travis, he said he wanted to talk to the Novans and Travis said the Novans didn't seem too eager to talk. And Archer starts raising his voice. He actually starts getting angry and he says, if I can't make first contact with other humans, and then he catches himself. And he lowers his voice and he says, I don't have any business being out here. And he he almost sounds sad about that last part. I don't have any business being out here. And I started thinking, like, where does this frustration come from? Because Archer is not a person who, I mean, he has, he can show his temper like we saw in Broken Bow when he got upset at the Vulcans. But usually it's directed at something like that. Like he's frustrated at the Vulcans because of decades of their interfering he sees them as interfering with humanity and also because what they were doing directly 
affected his father's work. So I can see that. But here it feels a little bit different. And I was wondering, is it just because he has a crew member, Malcolm, who was shot? There's a mystery they cannot solve. And there are these humans who don't trust him. And as you say, he wants to bring them back out into the light so they can live more as humans again. Or do you think that this feeling and the frustration and a is it a concern that he has that humans are not up to the task of exploration and maybe the Vulcans are right after all? He wants to prove them wrong, but he's not sure that he can. I, I think, honestly, that it comes from a lot of different things. But to me, the one that is stuck out when I, I saw this question on the outline was really, I think it's personal. For Archer, he wants to prove that not only does humanity deserve to be out here, but he himself deserves to be out here. I think he feels the weight of being the first captain. Yeah. And that's where when he says, I I shouldn't be out here, you know, like I shouldn't be the one, Uh, you know, like that they had chosen poorly, basically, you know, Mm -hmm. and and we know that from later seasons of Enterprise that Archer was not the first choice to be mm-hmm. uh, captain by everyone in Starfleet. So there was discussion about who should be the first captain. And so I think Archer's thinking to himself, well, dang it, if I can't talk to humans, like, what a good, what good am I out here? You know, like, it, it, and so that question, I think, is a great question. And, and it does, I love that it, you get to feel the immense pressure in that mm-hmm. moment of what it would be like to be the first captain. Yeah. And and obviously too, I mean this is a huge thing as we learn, you know, through Travis, this question of what happened to the Terranovans is been something that's plaguing humanity for almost 100 years now. Uh, so that is also a thing I think that he is dealing with which is he wants to be able to have the benefit of bringing them back into the fold and if he can't do that with other humans does this also prove you know like you said vulcans not believing that humanity is advanced enough to be out here uh doing what they're doing and it's a it's a question too uh, for him have we advanced far enough as humanity yeah and would the answer that question to be no we haven't like and how terrible would that be to feel like you found out so yeah. i think there's a lot of different things swirling around there which i i really like that you you picked up on because this is another place that i think the episode is actually successful in showing us the early years of space exploration are much mm-hmm. different than everything that we've been used to in uh, all the other shows. Yeah, I think your point about him feeling that maybe they chose poorly in making him captain is at the core of it. I do think that he personally, because of his dad being the the developer of the engine and the history they have with the Vulcans, that he personally wants to prove the Vulcans wrong also, which ties in directly to your point about him feeling maybe I'm not the right person, maybe they chose poorly. But it is a a complex thing. I will say that this is another case where I think Scott Bakula does a wonderful job of portraying that weight of being the first captain. I just, 
I don't know how many times over the years I've heard people say, yeah, Scott Bakula, he just didn't quite do it for me as captain. I just think he is perfect for this role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I 100% agree with you. So let's move on to one other quick note, and we're going to get away from the deep discussion of the themes of the episode and just talk about technology for a minute, because this also struck me in this episode. The Enterprise, the 1701D, of course, had the big room with the conference table and Geordi and Data could do their PowerPoint presentations, and it's so comfortable. But here in the NX01, we got this cramped little space that they call the Situation Room. And there's no Wolf Blitzer, but there is a little display that everyone <laughs> huddles around. And I just thought that was also really well done to capture that submarine feeling. It's very well known that the NX01 was modeled in our real world, designing the show was modeled after submarines. And I thought this was also a really nice technological touch to put us in that prequel time frame. And really make mm-hmm. it clear that, you know, this is not yep. Kirk's Enterprise. This is not Picard's Enterprise. This is, uh, we're barely getting out into space Enterprise. Yeah, what I love about it is that the the beauty of the whole thing, they have a display that's like infinitely better than anything we'd ever seen on Star Trek before. Right, you know, mm-hmm. with the clarity and the 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 visual graphics that they have are astounding compared to anything else we'd seen on Star Trek at this point, and in many ways, it feels almost more advanced than anything you'd get on Enterprise E, just because of that. Mm-hmm. And yet, being surrounded by this kind of like cramped, closed-in submarine feel makes it feel less technologically advanced. And so, there's there's a real the design work here by Zimmerman is is outstanding, and he doesn't get enough credit for what he does of of trying to walk that line of creating a prequel with technology that's a thousand times more advanced than anything we saw in the especially in the original series. Right. But again, even the next generation movies don't have this feel, mainly because they're even tied into technology that feels dated, and so. Mm-hmm. I really am glad that you pointed this out because it's really the first time we sit, you know, spend time in this situation area. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, it's it's awesome. And it does give a bunch of the cast members an opportunity to kind of all get together and um, have scenes together in a little bit less formal of an area to be able to bounce off each other. And, and, and that was the fun I really enjoyed of this, this episode is that just watching these characters kind of work with each other, which is really fun. And, and this was an episode too, you know, by doing that, we, we got to spend a little bit more time with Travis, who would be interesting to kind of track his development, but the character who does feel like maybe gets forgotten in other right. seasons. But here in this first season, they're definitely working in these first few episodes to bring him in and to make him almost like the expert on space where nobody else is the expert on space and and what it's actually like to be out here. And this is another episode, I think, that puts that at the forefront. So, yeah, to me, it really works. I like also how it feels like it's one of those old, I don't know if you remember those old video game, tabletop video games, you had the arcade machines, mm-hmm. but you also yep. had like the yep. Yep. the little sit down Pac-Man and asteroids. And 
the flat screen where you would look down at it, it feels like that too. Like they're all gathered around there and they're like, okay, well, if we put Pac-Man in the cave, I think he can get the mm-hmm. Novans out before the ghosts get them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, talking Do about you think Travis. like Pong. <laughs> right. Pong is so easy with these cave walls. We have so many surfaces to bounce the ball <laughs> off of. Exactly. Talking about Travis getting a little extra screen time. Is also good because this episode's interesting that there were a lot of scenes that weren't filmed in this episode. And one of them was a scene where Travis was supposed to go to a communications tower and check out the colony. And, you know, a hawk flies by or he hears a hawk and that got cut. So that's more time. It's like the beginning of Travis being cut out of the show, I feel like. Unfortunately, it's like it's like on the orb we have that joke about Sirach mm-hmm. Lofton does not appear in this episode. Yes, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> like, well, but what also was kind of cool about this episode too, and I, I love this at the very end, was how we already see Archer being a captain who is going to be involved in the lives of his crew by having dinner with Travis at the end. Yes, right, yeah. And welcome him. And obviously, you know, the captain's mess here is is such a pivotal place because as with most naval ships, if you get invited to have dinner with the captain, it's a big deal. And mm-hmm. so Travis being invited to not only have dinner with the captain, the engineer and the first officer, the science officer here, he's also get asked to write this report. And so I, I think. This episode does just such a great job of really kind of digging into crew dynamics and the way it would be on a ship. I mean, you know, you have the wonderful scene with Travis and Hoshi at the beginning where they're just kind of like, there's not a lot to do, you know, and they're just looking through because they're hopefully going to be at Terra Nova soon. So they're just looking through all this data and Travis and his downtime has been doing all this studying and stuff. So there, there's all these little small moments that, again, it's strange that this episode is so hated. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that then. So the reception. Brandon Braga said that this is his least favorite episode of Enterprise. Now, remember, he's one of the writers. He and Rick Berman wrote the episode together. He said, there happens to be an irony here. It was about finding a lost colony of humans, but it was boring And it was unfortunate that it was such an early episode. He called the episode terrible and one of several mediocre scripts from season one. Now, of course, that could be the writer himself looking back at his own work and feeling like I could have done better here and calling that mediocre. And then also last episode, when we talked about Unexpected, I mentioned the ultimate guide from Star Trek magazine back at the time. Well, just like Unexpected, they also gave Terra Nova a rating of one out of five. So I have a little bit more about reception, but before we go to that part, let's talk about Brandon's reaction to his own work here, as well as Star Trek Magazine's reaction. Yeah, I I mean, I think that Brandon may be suffering from uh, a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome because of just hearing this so many times that he's mm-hmm. just repeating it. Cause mm-hmm. I don't think this episode, and especially what we talked about here, 
I, I don't think this episode is that bad. Is this the best episode of Enterprise? No. Is this the worst episode of Enterprise? No. That is reserved for the actual worst episode of Enterprise, which is the finale. So, and that'll <laughs> never be eclipsed. So, right. um, this is not a bad episode of Enterprise. Um, and I, I actually think these early episodes are doing a great job of not trying to be over the top. Yeah, yeah. That us trying to explore the human condition in a very interesting way here, which this episode does, of what would it be like to be the first human colony when you have nobody, we have nothing, and maybe when you even feel like you've been attacked by your own people, like... It asks a lot of really big questions. Is it perfect in its execution? I don't think so. But again, I also feel like that's difficult to do because they're asking a lot of questions. And to really answer those with any depth in 44 minutes is right. tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right about Brennan. You know, when I've listened to him in recent years, and I guess when I say recent, it's a little bit longer than I think, going back to when the Enterprise Blu-rays came out. And he and Rick did the sit-down, really interesting sit-down discussions on there. And then hearing him talk elsewhere, and we actually had him here on this show on Warp 5 back when we started the podcast. I think it's episode three or four or five. And you know, listening to him talk about Enterprise these days, it does feel like fan reaction over the years and the way that people put the show down for so long gradually influenced his own thinking about his work in a negative way because they are doing what they set out to do here. And I'm a creative professional myself, so I very much know what it's like to have a vision for something, to do it, to execute it well, but to have other people not connect with it. And then you start thinking, hmm, did I do it the right way or not? And I really do think that Brandon and Rick are executing their plan for what Enterprise should be very well here at the beginning. It just wasn't everyone's cup of tea. This episode, it could have been more interesting. Like the portrayal, the execution of it could have been more interesting. Yes. But I think that the ideas behind it and I think the visual work on it, even if we think the visual work maybe isn't portraying the, the plausible fall of these colonists during the time period between the asteroid impact and what we see now. I think the episode overall is good. And I don't think that, you know, he should feel like it's one of the worst of season one. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So quickly, last thing here. I mentioned there was one more thing about reception. There's this unofficial book entitled Beyond the Final Frontier, and it reviews Star Trek TV series and films. And of course, the authors, they didn't like this episode, but they said something that really caught my eye, and it really makes me wonder about their analysis of Star Trek. They said this was the first major misfire of the show, and Terra Nova isn't really about anything. And I don't really understand how, as a Star Trek fan, you can watch this episode and come away from it saying, this episode wasn't about anything. It was just like 44 minutes of wasted time. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, they they also say that, you know, the, all the revelations are anything but predictable. And, and, and honestly, I don't think that's true either, because 
it could have been anything. Mm-hmm. The, the, the radiation could have been caused by the other colonist ship, an accident happening and the ship crashing and the reactor leak causing the problem. You know, so there's lots of different ways that you could have gone. And what I thought was actually very interesting was that the idea that an asteroid hits the, a rogue asteroid part hits this planet not far from where they are. Obviously, this is a planet that has no defense systems whatsoever because they just Mm -hmm. got like this is exactly the type of thing that you would have to worry about happening. This would be one of the risks. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've talked many times already in this show about Enterprise is showing us the risk of what it means to be human and to explore there's always risk involved, and this is just one more of those opportunities to show us S happens, right? You know? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> like, and and it, especially when yeah. you're out there in the middle of nowhere. Right. And we don't know anything about the system that this planet is in. You know, we're lucky here on Earth. We also have asteroid impacts, especially small ones, yep. that, you know, meteorite impacts. But, you know, we're lucky that Jupiter is there because Jupiter protects us. Its gravity protects us Mm -hmm. from a lot of risks. We would be impacted more frequently if Jupiter weren't there. And we don't know if this system has a gas giant like that. It's possible that Terra Nova is more susceptible to these types of impacts. You can think, oh, an impact like this, it's so unlikely. How could that happen? It's just terrible luck by them. But who knows? You know, That's something that humans will have to deal with as we start to colonize space. Uh, we We won't know for sure how things are, uh, what the dangers are. All right. Well, okay. I think we've run down this episode pretty thoroughly. So any last words? You know, I I mean, I I think for me, when it comes down to it, that I would say that this is probably the other episodes that have either been four or three and a half. I do think that this is an episode that where I would say this is more like a three. It's better than average, I think. But it's just better than average, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 um, but I, I what I love about this process is that we found so much to talk about in this episode. And, and in all honesty, I mean, if we really wanted to dig into any one of these issues, I feel like we we could have had an entire episode about some of these these themes that we thought of from this episode. So, yeah, it it it's probably my least favorite episode so far of the series that we've gone through at this point, but, but that's not a bad thing when, when I'm still giving it an above average rating. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I'm going to give it three before relatives and one Amelia Earhart. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, everyone, we would love to hear your thoughts on Terra Nova. There are many ways you can share those with us. The best way to join into a conversation with us and fellow listeners is to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group. If you're not already a member, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field, and it should come up. If not, type the whole name. It is a closed group, so I do need you to answer the questions so I can let you in and agree to the rules of the forum. So please do that. We would love to see you there. You can also find us on Twitter, where our username is TrekFM. That's our username throughout social media. And you can send us comments by traditional methods. Email if you go to our website, trek.fm slash contact, and use the form there. Choose to send to a show. Choose Warp 5, and that will come to Matthew and me by email. Now, Matthew, when you're not busy rubbing mud all over your face, 
where can people find you? Well, you got to exfoliate. Um, but uh, when I'm not doing that, you can also find me on social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero uh, Two, and of course, you could find me here on the network on our whole other side of the network called the Six O Two Club, where we're talking about all the fandoms we love outside of Star Trek. Uh, in that same feed, you also find Snyder cuts as well as. John Mills and I just started assembling Avengers, all about us walking through the Marvel Cinematic Universe one film at a time. Uh, and then I am also doing Literary Treks and The Orb with you, Chris, where we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, Literary Treks is all about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And big episode this week, folks, that uh, just come out recently as we uh, talk to Dayton Ward about the beginning of the end for the lit verse there uh, with Star Trek Coda Moments Asunder, so please check that out. Uh, and then over on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows, I finished a show with Drea Kaufman where we talked about Harry Potter one chapter at a time on Owl Post, and then talk about Star Wars each and every week with the aforementioned John Mills on aggressive negotiations. So, uh, Chris, though, uh, when you're not here, you know, hanging out in the mess hall with flocks, trying to figure out what you're going to eat next, where can we find you? Well, I'm busy putting stuff together, you know, assembling Avengers. It sounds like I've gone and I bought some superheroes at Ikea, but I have to put them together myself at home. (laughs) The instructions are murder. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find me, of course, on the Orb, talking DS9 with you, literary treks sometimes, talking books and comics. And then I'm working on some ideas for Interphase, which is a Star Trek Universe podcast. And then Larry Nemechek and I do the Ready Room from time to time, talking about the overall franchise, the business side of things, and all sorts of stuff over there. And then, of course, I'm busy putting magazines together, as always. And also working on some behind-the-scenes stuff here for the network on our web presence. So hopefully that'll be out there soon for everyone as well. And if you'd like to help us keep all of that going, we could definitely use your support with our new plans for the network through Patreon. If you'd like to help us out, please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to find out how you can become an associate producer. You can get involved in the network in other ways. We would love to have your assistance. And I want to send a huge thank you to everyone who's supporting us right now. We would not be able to get these podcasts out to you without your help. So thank you very, very much. And lastly, if you're enjoying the show, if you're enjoying Warp 5, we'd love to get your rating and review in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen, if you have the option to leave a rating and review, we would love to have your support there. So thank you very much for continuing to listen to Warp 5 and going on this journey with us for the 20th anniversary of Enterprise. Well, Matthew, I'm going to be spending the next few days Uh, You mentioned exfoliating. I'm going to be getting my blue all over, get my antennas ready to go, because next time we're going to be talking about one of my favorite Enterprise episodes, the Andorian incident. Chris, let's go. (laughs) 